0: Looking at the first 14 verses of John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1 to verse 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Let us pray that God will bless his word preached to our souls. Our Father, please, now may the words that have been read and heard not merely be heard with the hearing of the ear, but also implanted in the deepest recess of our hearts so that we may believe that Christ is in you and you are in him and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if Netflix came out with a version of the Bible, I think there may be one small advantage, an admittedly small advantage, uh, you know, for those less sanctified people who watch a TV show. And then what happens after you've watched a TV show on Netflix is the next one comes up right away. And sometimes maybe you sit there and go, oh, well, what can one more show hurt? And it's just so quick and you stay in tune with the flow of the show. Well, what happens with chapter divisions such as chapter 14 and then headings over uh, the words that proceed is you tend to have a break in your thought and in the process and context of what is taking place. Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to betray him. And Peter, being a leader and a spokesman and a man of faith and courage, being told that he's going to betray Jesus naturally then in verse 1, you see, let not your hearts be troubled. That is in light of the fact that he's just said to John that he's going to be betrayed by Judas, the one whom he gives uh, this morsel, which was Judas, and Judas leaves, Satan enters into him. Then Peter says that he will follow Christ, but Christ says, no, you're going to deny me. Christ has already been speaking about his death. The disciples have a multitude of troubles that are quickly arising now in their hearts because of what Christ is saying in his farewell discourse. What is the solution to our troubles? What troubles have you experienced in the last week, in the last month, this year? If you were to think of your troubles, what would they be? And what is the solution? The solution is to believe in God. There are many other remedies for our troubles, and not all of them entirely bad. You might have a glass of wine to cheer your heart. You might go on a holiday for a well earned break. There may be a host of things that you do because you're troubled, and they can provide some temporary relief. But at the very core of your Christian existence, the primary aid to your troubles is God. It is God. Knowing God. You can have all of the other aids present in your life to help you with all of your troubles, and many do. But you will still ultimately be deeply troubled unless God is at the center as well as the circumference of everything about who you are. I cannot overstate how important knowing God is in the midst of your troubles and His attributes. I was so heartened this week, actually. Bill Tuninga is a, a person who's been visiting our church in Surrey, and he's uh, also a retired minister in the Christian Reformed Church, but he's coming and visiting our church. And he texted me and said he had a friend who was a, a pastor but now is in jail in North Carolina, and he got a copy of uh, my book, God Is, on the attributes of God. And someone had told Bill, did you send this to him? And he says, no. So he doesn't know who sent it. But the point was that someone can be in jail, filled with troubles. What do they need to know? They need to know who God is. You can be in a mansion. You can be on holiday. You can be at school. You can be at work. Wherever you are, you need to know who God is. And you need to believe in God. And Jesus is saying to these troubled disciples, believe in God, Believe also in Me. Because you cannot accurately believe in God unless you believe in Jesus Christ who tells them He is the visible image of the invisible God. And that has always been what God requires of His people. Speaking of covenant baptism earlier, nothing fundamentally changes with what God requires of His people. There's no difference between the Old Testament and the New they were to rejoice at Christ's day. They were to believe in God. In fact, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, Israel saw with the Exodus the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. What are they to do? Well, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Jesus is now taking that type of language. Believe in God. Believe also in Me and appropriating it to the disciples. They are troubled, believe in God, and they will have many other troubles besides the imminent troubles of their Messiah being crucified. They have the troubles of their flesh, as Peter has found out with his impending denial of Christ. They have The trouble of the world in chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Or chapter 14, I think verse 30, where Jesus speaks of the prince of this world is now going to uh, be let loose in a manner of speaking. They have the world, the flesh, and the devil. They will have trouble. They will have trouble. They will have trouble. What are they to do? Believe in God, but also believe in me. And if God is for you, as we find out in Romans 8, who can be against you? Believe in God. Now, as he tells them to believe in God, he gives reasons why they should. So in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Christ has told them that He's leaving them. He's told them that in chapter 13. He's telling them again, I am leaving you. But He is telling them it's for their good that He's leaving. It's actually to their advantage that He is is leaving, and he's going to go and prepare a place for them, but he's also assuring them that he will come back and take them to the place that he has prepared. Now, I think there may be a sort of double fulfillment going on here. Because on the one hand, as Revelation chapter 21 tells us in verses 2 to 3, it is clear that there will be a sort of heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to earth that will be the fulfillment of this. Now John who wrote Revelation tells us in verse 2 of chapter 21 and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God here's the key word prepared. Jesus is going to prepare a place here the new Jerusalem comes down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A beautiful Jerusalem is coming down to earth and Jesus is the one who will be preparing. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. I go to prepare a place, a room. The old King James, it's not an accurate translation, but mansion. I prepare a mansion for you. I go to prepare a dwelling place. And this dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So there's a sense in which this is an external fulfillment. There's a place Jesus is going. He's preparing. But I also think there's a spiritual side to this. Jesus is going to prepare a place and God's house is the temple. But Jesus is actually the temple, as John tells us in chapter 2, verse 21. He is the temple. And Jesus as the temple joins Himself to us so that not only does Jesus go to prepare a place for us, but Jesus actually returns by the Spirit to dwell in us so that He may prepare a place in us. Now, this is quite glorious because there is a sense in which we have something very much to look forward to. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, you have to understand that a room in a house, uh, its glory is contingent upon the glory of the house. You see a little house and someone says, uh, you get a room, you would say, well, the room will be appropriate to that little house. If the house is cosmic... If the house is heavenly, if the house is God's house, then a room in God's house is far greater than any type of house you can conceive of on earth. So you have to remember that the room that you are given, the dwelling place, the abode, the permanent residence you are given is in connection to the nature of the house that you will be part of. And that will be the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Thomas asks a question. And you have to understand, Thomas, he gets a bad rap, because most people understand Thomas simply uh, based upon his doubting uh, nature. Unless I see the scars in his hands and his side, I will not believe. But Thomas is actually a, a loyal, courageous fellow as well. He may have misgivings, and here he does, but he's also loyal. At one time he said, let us go to Jerusalem, that we may die with him. He was obviously courageous. But here he asks a question. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, do you know who Thomas is like? He's like many of you. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You know? Uh, Go up to your children. Where are my glasses? Who's put my glasses somewhere? Or my wife, she... Uh, she likes to work out a lot. So she takes her keys with her. She drives. She always takes the key ring off. I have a massive key ring because it's the only way I never... And I never lose my keys, by the way. I'm far superior to Barb in the key loss industry. She's always losing her key. And so many times, opens her... Oh, there's my extra key. The other day, she put on a jacket and pulled out a spare key and there it is. This is precisely what Thomas is doing. The key is in his pocket. The glasses are on his head. And he's saying, show us the Father. And Jesus is actually saying that if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. Now, notice what He says. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. Why? Because He's right in front of you in a manner of speaking. The visible image of the invisible God is right before you, Thomas. But isn't it interesting, verse 6? Verse 6, I think, is often a verse that comes up in apologetics courses, sometimes evangelistic tracts. But the original context of verse 6 is not actually an evangelism tool. It can be that, and I'll get to that later. It's not even an apologetic tool where you are trying to disprove that other religions are the way to God. It is actually a verse that is given to troubled disciples in the midst of their anxieties. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want to come to the Father? It has to be through me. No one else has come from the Father. No one else knows the Father. No one else possesses resurrection life in themselves. I am the way to the Father. It was Thomas Kempis. He has this wonderful quote. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way which you must follow. I am the truth which you must believe. And I am the life for which you must hope. Jesus is the way for His people. He is the truth for His people. That you cannot know anything true about God ultimately that will save you unless it is from the hand of Christ. And you cannot have any true life, resurrection life, unless it is life from the one who has been raised from the dead. This is a verse for God's people. It is a verse for others as well, but in a different way. Now, Philip speaks to Christ. Now, do you know what's interesting? Who usually is speaking up among the disciples? It's Peter. And... I saw a tweet the other day where someone was distinguishing humans from animals and saying that the difference, one of the differences between humans and animals is that animals don't feel shame. And someone responded to that tweet, you clearly have never owned a dog. Some of you who have owned a dog understand that dogs understand when they're in trouble. And what do they do when they're in trouble? Well, they sometimes go and hide under the table and give you these little eyes because they know they're going to get it. So I'm convinced dogs have a degree of shame. Peter's been told that he's going to deny Christ. And you know what's happened to Peter? He's gone silent. He's not saying anything. This poor fellow is probably in a total crisis right now. He's been called out publicly that he will deny Christ three times. And so, in a certain sense, I guess it gives others a chance to speak Thomas is speaking, Philip is speaking. It's almost as though every disciple, if they kept on talking, would speak except for Peter. And the next time we hear Peter speaking, he's denying the Lord. So Peter speaks and says, Lord, show us the Father. Right after Christ has said these words to Thomas, you have to understand that when you're distressed as the disciples are, it's very hard to think straight. So Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I've been telling you this my whole ministry. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why are you asking this question? Now, this may be the most concentrated section on the Father anywhere in God's Word in terms of the Father, the Father, the Father, who He is, all of these things. There's lots on the Father, but this may be the most concentrated section in terms of what Christ is saying. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? Now you need to hold up right there. This is something that no mere man can say. We can all say that the Father is in us. We are told in 1 John that God dwells in us. We believe that God is is in Christ, even tells us this in this section. But what no man can ever say is that I am in the Father. We can say God is in us, but we can't say we are in the Father. Jesus is making an absolute claim to divinity here that He is in the Father just as the Father is in Him. There is uh, uh, fancy words for this, but the point that you need to simply understand is that this is a remarkable claim the words that i say to you i do not speak on my own authority but the father who dwells in me does his works believe me so verse one believe in god believe also in me what are you to believe believe that i am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves Now, what's so striking about this little section here is how many times the word Father is used. And I think I'm correct here that just in this little section, verses 8 to 11, you may have more references to Christ's relationship to the Father and, by extension, the disciples' relationship to the Father than anywhere else in the Old Testament put together. It was not a word that was typically on the lips of the Israelites. You go through the Psalms, you go through the Pentateuch, you go through the prophets. It's not as though they're all calling upon God as Father. There are a few references, but it's extremely limited. Jesus is making grandiose claims that He is the Son of God. If He's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and if He has come to join Himself to you, that means that you share now in His identity as children of God and God is your Father. There's a reason we have to wait until the New Testament for God the Father to be called just that with the frequency with which we find here. It's truly remarkable. And it led J.I. Packer to say once that the blessing of adoption is the highest gospel privilege that you receive. Page 207 of Knowing God, hopefully the right version. I know what one of you will do. You'll go home 207. This guy's a fraud. Well, what does he say? Packer says, in adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship, and He establishes us as His children and heirs, because that's what He has done with Christ. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing, and never understate how beautiful a thing justification is. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father in adoption is a greater thing. Jesus is showing His disciples that He has a unique relationship to God as His Father. And the glory of what He is saying is that this is not an exclusive relationship now only between the Son and the Father, but something they will be able to share in. Now as he continues, he says truly, truly in verse 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater, not lesser, that's, there's no mistranslation there. Greater works than these will he do. Well, what was the context? The context is verse 11. Believe on account of the works themselves. So they're going to do greater works than the works Christ has just spoken of, which in the context of John is raising Lazarus, opening the eyes of the blind, causing people who are lame for many, many decades to get up and walk. They're going to do greater works than these. Oh, this is exciting. Faith Pentecostal Church after this sermon. All the ex-Broadway people getting warm and fuzzy right now. Maybe. What do you think is actually being taught here? Greater works than these will be done. You have to think about this. Who really could do greater works than raising Lazarus from the dead? It has to be greater than that. Opening the eyes of the blind... All of these works, really? People are going to do better miracles than those? Is that what's being said here? Or what are the greater works? What is the greatest work? Because if you think about it, we could perhaps have a power whereby we could go and raise someone from the dead. We could give eyesight to the blind. We could heal everyone in a hospital. But if their heart has not been changed, what ultimately will that avail? What if... Christ, who has ascended on high and pours out his spirit, enables sinners like myself, but in this context, a sinner like Peter at Pentecost, to preach a gospel of a risen Savior that will actually not just open the eyes of the blind, but change cold, dead, black hearts into living hearts for God. That's greater. And nothing can be greater than the Spirit changing the heart of dead men, dead women, dead boys, dead girls, giving them life eternal. That's a greater work than any miracle. Greater works. And Peter's testimony to that, Jesus preached to very little success in His earthly ministry. But all of a sudden, Jesus ascends on high. Peter preaches and 3,000 are converted that day. Cut to the heart. Why? because Christ's Spirit is being poured out from heaven. Greater works than these will be done. The dead will live forever. The blind will see with the eyes of faith. And millions upon millions upon millions will go from hell-bound sinners to heavenward saints forever and ever where there are many rooms prepared for them because the Gospel will be preached. So then when you look at whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's not that you just get to ask anything and attach Jesus' name at the end and think, well, there you go. It's a Christian prayer. That's not what's being said at all. To ask in Christ's name, the name is symbolic of everything that Jesus is and does. There is no other name by which men can be saved. Are we simply saying that a name saves? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. There is no other name as reflective of everything that Jesus has done and will be doing. So when you pray for things to be done in Christ's name, you're praying for things to be done that will tend to His glory based upon the things that He has done. That's what He will honor, and that's what He has promised to honor. Has He promised to answer every other request of ours? Lord, I've lost my keys. I've lost my glasses. Sometimes you don't find them. Sometimes He's gracious and does answer that prayer. But one thing He says He will do is anything that is prayed for in His name that is reflective of who He is and what He has promised to do. And that involves the salvation of sinners. greater works than these. Jesus will do them. Well, what can we say by way of application? First is this Never be ashamed of the things that Jesus is speaking about here and to talk to people about this reality. I'm thinking about verse 6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, nobody, not it would be ideal. Many Christians have fallen into this trap even today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. It would be most ideal if people came through Christ, but we're willing to accept there are other ways. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one, it doesn't matter if you're Abraham or Peter, David or Ruth, Esther or Mary, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, And we must not be ashamed of that. You know, I have a little story to tell you. And I beg your forgiveness. Especially my dear brother, Paul Walker. So you need to listen now, Paul. For many years, my brother has visited our church. um, Maybe upwards of five to ten times. And over those years... Paul has sought my brother out and asked my brother very direct questions about his spiritual condition. And I must admit that on the one hand, I thought, oh, oh, how does, you know, Darren's coming and, you know, can't we just let the gospel be preached and he'll believe? You know, Paul's coming up to him, making him maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable and you start to worry about things, you know, and. Uh, oh, I see uh, you had a chat with Paul, and you know, sometimes we talk about how my brother had, uh, had been Pauled, uh, we'll call it. And uh, Barham actually told me a story about Paul getting a black eye once, because you picked up someone on the side of the road, they got in, and you started talking to them about their spiritual, uh, about realities of Christ and stuff, and they punched you. And uh, you know, I thought, okay, interesting story. So usually Paul comes and he starts finding my brother out. And my brother's not yet a Christian. But it was most remarkable because last week he came to church and there was one person he wanted to meet. He wanted to go and see. Not avoid. He wanted to go and see. He did not want to avoid. Let me say that again. He said, is Paul going to be there? Is Paul going to be there? And did he not come up to you? And introduce himself and say, Hi, Paul. All of those years, Paul had been going after him. How's your soul, young man? Do you love the Lord? Are you walking with God? And you know what some parents are like and some family members? How you cringe? And yet, here is a young man who sees someone who genuinely is interested in him, who has spoken to him about Ultimate realities and wants now to go and introduce himself to him and say hi. Some of us live in that realm of unbelief. Some of us live in that realm of, oh, we shouldn't say, oh, we better be careful, oh, we just let them come to believe. That's utter nonsense. It's rubbish. You're ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of the truth. You look at verse 6 and you want nothing to do with it. And so you ignore young men or young ladies or old men or old ladies because you don't want to be embarrassed. And then you get to live your quiet, comfortable little life where you can just say a little prayer for someone. How nice! But you won't go and say, Hey, how are you doing? Are you walking with the Lord? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you think you're wiser. And you put it under a cloak of respectability or a cloak of not wanting to offend someone. And the truth is, the truth is, it hit me hard that if you're a genuine and sincere and you have the words of Christ speaking to anyone, you don't know what God's going to do with those words many years later. And instead of getting palled, he got darned. But, while well, I have a great deal of respect for many of you, there was one person my brother wanted to come and speak to. Think about that. Think about that. Because We don't have long on this earth. And the opportunities are limited. And you'd be surprised what some people might find when there's a genuine and sincere desire to see whether they're walking with the Lord. I had another point, but I want to finish on that one because it's ultimately what matters. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is Jesus your way? Is He your truth? And is He your life? Because that's ultimately the only thing that matters. Are you, as a Christian believer, in the midst of all of your troubles, in the midst of all of your anxieties and stresses and heartaches, are you able to say, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I know He is the way. I know He is the truth. And I know He is my life. And that I will one day be with Him. And He will be with me because He is already with me. And He has promised to come back and see me. Let us see the Father. You have seen the Father when you see Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will be humbled by the promises You offer us, humbled by how the truth can set us free, and humbled by the realities of what it means to be faithful with the Word of God. Please bless those who hear the Gospel. Please bless those who need to still hear the Gospel. And may the Gospel be the power of God unto salvation, not damnation. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.